Well, hello and good morning, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This is episode 44 of the Quickie Podcast, and oh boy, is this a good one. Woo! I'm excited to share it with you. So clear your calendar for the next 30-ish minutes um, and really tune into what this guest has to share because it is just a fascinating interview. My guest today is Jessica Bellamy. She is from Louisville, Kentucky. She used to work in research, and that was her career originally, but she spent a lot of her spare time in volunteer work and canvassing and community meeting work. She then turned information designer. This is where it comes together, and she founded her studio called GRIDS um, back in 2015. GRIDS stands for Grassroots Information Design Studio. They specialize in infographics um, for nonprofits and community groups, and they help take really complex issues and really complex policy and make it a lot easier to understand, you know, visually see and understand. Um, she shares with us that her family owns a soul food restaurant in Louisville. Um, another fascinating story she shares, and I don't want to spoil it, but she talks about the first time she started, she realized and noticed design art in the world, but it wasn't what you think. It wasn't a, a box or a piece of art or something that she saw that you know really stuck with her. It was the issues that she was seeing around representation in design and marketing. At that point, she felt called to increase representation in some artistic way. She just didn't know what it was. I don't want to spoil any more of this interview, but it's so great. Ladies and gentlemen, I know you're going to love this one. My guest, Jessica Bellamy. Here we go. Welcome to the Quickie Podcast, the daily interview show where we talk to graphic designers about their journey to the creative field, and we do it in 30 minutes or less. So, are you ready for a Quickie? Good morning, Jessica. How are you today? Doing well. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast this morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. You ready to go? Yeah. All right. Well, let's start with the first question here. Briefly tell the listeners about yourself. So I'm an information designer uh, located in Louisville, Kentucky. I started a, de a design agency in 2015 called Grids, the Grassroots Information Design Studio, uh, which is now about... Uh, uh, about what five years ago uh, almost five years ago mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it's a design agency that focuses on making information graphics for nonprofits and community groups it has a very inclusive business plan and it uses a lot of really interesting and sometimes non-traditional methods to find solutions to policy issues and breaking down complex service information fascinating so primarily working with um, nonprofits and charitable organizations. Yes. Got it. So even further back than five years ago and starting that, I wanted to chat about your childhood. And I want to ask, you know, was your, what was your childhood like? And do you feel that you had a creative childhood? I absolutely feel like I had a creative childhood. I, I think it was kind of pushed on me a little bit, which is fine. 
by my mother who made us draw as children. She herself, she's um, uh, an artist. She doesn't practice as much as she used to because she does more culinary things now. But um, back when we were kids, when when she would have us do indoor activities, there was always a drawing component. She always had us uh, try to find new ways to creatively visualize something in our environment. So I'm very thankful for that. But at that time, it kind of felt like work as a child. But I'm glad <laughs> that she made us do that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So it seemed like work, but you started to enjoy it more and more. Yes. Perfect. And you said your mom is into culinary stuff now? Yeah. So my family owns a soul food restaurant here in Kentucky that's been featured on even like the Travel Channel and things of that nature uh, called Shirley Mae's Cafe. My mother has. Oh, yeah. My mother has a, a pretty extensive like culinary background. Um, and has her own like huge cookbook because she she went and uh, studied uh, culinary arts uh, with at the collegiate level. Mm-hmm. But uh, most of her skills are devoted to uh, contributing to different and interesting things in the soul food realm within our family restaurant. The family restaurant is thirty one years old. Uh, I'm as old as the restaurant, so. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> so were you raised in in the kitchens there and working through the restaurants as well? Oh, absolutely. And my, my grandmother, who opened the restaurant, she's the namesake, Shirley May. Uh, she created the restaurant after she had retired. She was just really bored and <laughs> wanted something to do. So she she built this restaurant that was not only around like a bunch of food that, that of course, she grew up in, but um, that also contributed a lot to the community. Like, she's also known for starting the Salute to Black Jockeys Festival, which, as you know, Kentucky is all about the Kentucky Derby. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't really talk about our history of some of the, the greatest um, jockeys of our time, some people that still have undefeated records, and all of these were uh, black jockeys that were sometimes indentured servants or even slaves when they were racing. But um, they're their work and skills have shaped the industry. And so she's definitely been honored for um, starting that movement here in Louisville. Wow, that's cool. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do, I'm not really up on Kentucky history, if I'm being honest, but that's fascinating. <laughs> that's okay. I didn't know that. <laughs> Very cool. Okay, so when you were younger, take us back to that moment when you first started noticing design out in the world or or art out in the world what did you first start seeing well i think the first thing i noticed uh, when i started noticing design was the issues around representation I, i felt like i only saw people of color in print media if it was an advertisement for cigarettes (laughs) number one hell yeah when I was a kid I thought that was just what black people were supposed to do is smoke cigarettes because we were always in cigarette ads and this was before you weren't allowed to have animated characters as well so I definitely remember Joe the camel who I assumed was black if he would if he was human he would have been black (laughs) but of course he's a camel (laughs) in the the illustration Um, but that was pretty much the only time I saw like people of color so as I got older and started thinking more about um, uh, design and how it impacted me through media, I, I, I realized I really felt called to increase representation in some type of artistic way. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know what that would look like. 
but that's what I what I knew I was going to do as early as high school. As early as high school, I was going to ask when that when that sort of movement started for you. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Starting to paint the the childhood picture here, the younger picture. <laughs> so then, in that uh, sort of journey, in your journey so far, what do you feel has been the most influential design of your life? Um, either something you've seen or something you've been a part of. Yeah, um, I would say that it would be the Smoketown Vision Report. Um, it, so when I started Grids back in uh, 2015, it was very much a leap of faith mm-hmm. to start such a niche uh, design agency focused around infographics, so focused around social initiatives. Like it was definitely not something that that I had ever seen or witnessed before, nor did I really have an idea of how well it would uh, would work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there was a project that I was a part of uh, prior to starting Grids. Um, so I used to work in research before I went full-time with design. Okay. I worked in a, a lab at the University of Louisville, but in my spare time, I was doing a lot of volunteer works with volunteer work with organizations. I got community organizer training and started doing more canvassing, uh, more community meetings and forum work. And there was a point where uh, a project um, was formed by Kentuckians for the Commonwealth uh, around a neighborhood called Smoketown, which is actually the neighborhood that I'm from. It's where my grandmother's restaurant is. It's where I grew up. And Smoketown is the oldest historically black neighborhood in our city. It's the only place that African Americans were allowed to live after the Civil War. Wow. And so it's definitely, a, yeah, it's definitely a very, um, it's a community with a rich history and that has been um, uh, not given the entitlements of other neighborhoods in the city. So it's definitely a neighborhood where people have had to pull together uh, to use their own resources and, and their own um, ingenuity and resourcefulness to really thrive in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So when um, uh, this this initiative of the Obama administration happened called Hope 6, um, Hope 6 was an initiative that took public housing um, units like the, the projects and so on and wanted to take those areas that were considered to be concentrated areas of poverty, uh, break it down, and then rebuild it as mixed-income housing. And so when that happened to Smoketown, and uh, there was a, a huge displacement of the population because a lot of people weren't allowed to live in the public housing. Uh, well, no one was allowed to live in the public housing units because they were going to tear them down and build them up as mixed-income. Mm-hmm. There was this huge interest in the city where um, a lot of developers saw this as an opportunity. Smoketown is right next to downtown, so this was an opportunity to expand the urban core, uh, get a lot of young and hip, cool kids to come move into this area so that they can, you know, live the urban lifestyle or urban experience or whatnot, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And so when all this money started flowing into Smoketown, where people were buying uh, parcels of properties, and trying to even rename, <laughs> rebrand the neighborhood from Smoketown to things like the Creative Innovation Zone and all oh sorts my goodness. of, you know, nonsense. Uh, uh, Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, which was an organization that I was very active in, uh, wanted to to show that there were still voices in the neighborhood, that there were lots of people that have been there for years that were still there and could help better inform how uh, the neighborhood was going to evolve. So what we did as a collective 
was we created a 55-question survey, went door-to-door, asking folks what their priorities were, what their concerns were for the neighborhood, what their vision was, what were assets that could use more resources, so forth and so on. So we took all that data, and we knew we wanted to present it to, like, policymakers or to um, uh, people that were developers just so that, that the residents could have more meaningful influence in how the neighborhood was changing. Uh, but, of course, like, we didn't want this to be a report to sit on someone's shelf. And I volunteered to to make infographics for the report. I only had one weekend to do it. Oh and I, I, I know, right? And I hadn't made an infographic in a couple of years because I had been out of college working my very cushy and safe research job for quite mm-hmm. some time. Uh, but, uh, yeah, drink a lot of Monster with coffee, which was terrible for my heart. I'm pretty sure, and got it done. I made some infographics, and it wasn't until uh, we released the report that I realized what the real power was, uh, and the real power wasn't just putting the report in uh, the hands of the policymakers and the developers. It was it was putting it in the hands of the residents themselves mm-hmm. because it completely changed their ability to, to combat uh, some of the notions that were being said to them about how the neighborhood had to change. They could say, oh, well, what you're saying isn't really an issue, or what we're saying is more of an issue because of this data point, because of that. Like Once they had the data at their fingertips, they were able to ad- advocate for uh, their own initiatives and their own priorities, and it was the most powerful thing I'd ever seen in my life. So I felt like a, like a weapons maker, and I wanted to wow. continue to make, to make infographics like that. So... Um, that's why I started Grids. It was a, a leap of faith because, you know, I, I had never seen anything like that happen before and didn't know if I'd be able to survive, but I did. Oh, I'm here. Hi. <laughs> there you go. Wow. So that's like, that's a huge moment in your career and career path then because that, you know, led you to something that you didn't really know that you were so passionate about, but it just ignited this fire in you. Yeah, Absolutely. Okay, that's so cool. <laughs> that's a cool one. So Smoketown was the original name. And what did they? What was one of the names they tried to change it to? The Creative Innovation Zone. The Creative Innovation Zone. All right. Yeah, pretty good. <laughs> that's a, it's a long one. Tough to, tough to get that to stick, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm glad it's still called Smoketown. Very glad. Oh, yeah. Like from all of that work, like the Neighborhood Association has been revitalized. And so there's a very strong uh, group of, of folks that are constantly at the forefront of everything that happens in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. you know. So there's not as much danger. It's a very, very slow gentrification process now rather than as quick as it was happening yeah. a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> okay. Um, I want to know who is a designer or a brand that you look up to or closely follow and what is it about them that you like? Well... Um, I've got a couple and, and they're non-traditional, very non-traditional. I, like I love, I love the design studio for, for social in, intervention. Uh, that's up in, I think, Massachusetts. Like, um, when you build equity into design work and you're a design justice advocate, you realize that not all solutions are design solutions. Mm-hmm. And so being willing to kind of get into more of the kind of experience design of it all, uh, to really try to, uh, facilitate outcomes that are are the most effective for that problem. So I love that studio. And um, this person is not a designer, but she works with data all the time. Uh, Yeshebet Milner, 
She uh, is one of the co-founders of Data for Black Lives. Uh, she is constantly in uh, political spaces, talking to um, uh, like uh, p- uh, political like aficionados and staffers and all this stuff about data rights, about um, uh, big data and how it actually actively works against us. Because mm-hmm. right now we're in an age where we assume that giving consent to the use of our data is enough, and it's not, <laughs> because someone can pull a data point. Uh, about where you live, like, you know, based on, like, your neighborhood and decide whether or not to hire you, whether or not you're deserving of a bail, whether or not you're deserving of a loan. Mm-hmm. Like, all there's so much, so much data that is siphoned from all of our activity on the Internet that is used to determine our worthiness. And so I love seeing whatever she's doing, and I follow her pretty much on every platform. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I saw one of your yeah. posts um, the other day on Instagram that was talking about having a data bill of rights, I believe is what the, the term that you called it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm definitely not the first to, to say it. I've been reading mm-hmm. uh, uh, from so many other data activists out there and movement scientists, as it were, um, like uh, Martin Tisney. Uh, I love reading uh, Kathy O'Neill, Sophia Noble. Like, there's so many people in that space that are being great, like critics of 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 how we're utilizing our data. But not only being critics, but also kind of like muckraking because we assume that data is objective, right? Mm -hmm. That it's our neutral vision of the world, our neutral impression of the world, and it's it's not true. It's just um, we have so many data sets that are filled with biases and most people don't even know I guess what data is that's also another educational problem mm-hmm. <laughs> but when you think data like you think of uh, uh, numbers right like fiscal statistics but you don't see how, how closely tied every single post or even website that you visit or uh, da- how a data point can even be skewed about you mm-hmm. um, based Makes on like I said further away yes yes and so like if you're if you're basing uh, someone's hireability uh, based on the hireability of people in that gym, that uh, demographic or within that geographical location, then it it changes uh, your your ability to to be an individual and to to really use use and leverage your own skills and experiences to continue to achieve and thrive. And heck, just really, it's infringing on our civil liberties, period. But, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, that's something that takes it a lot more serious and personal than we know Dave likes cars. Yes, exactly, exactly. Right, it takes yes. it to a whole other level where it can actually <laughs> impact my level. real life. Oh, yes. And states like Kentucky, like, feel like, uh, like at the at the policy level, we use so many algorithms to determine whether or not people um, uh, they're, they're sentencing, especially about the judicial system. And we feel like we're being so objective that we're at the forefront of uh, getting past a lot of our, our racist agendas that are embedded in our system. But that's definitely not true because that's not how it plays out. Like if you analyze some of these um, um programs like that have these algorithms like compass uh which is from north point or anything else like you can you can literally line by line uh uh, point by point kind of uh, see where things are getting skewed and look at the outcomes to see if any of their indicators have any merit so you you have so many great like um uh, folks out there that i consider like scholars in my mind and heart (laughs) <laughs> that are publishing great works that are really trying to muckrake and bring this these issues to the forefront. 
Mm-hmm. And in my work as an information designer, I feel like I'm constantly just reminding people that data points are people and lived experiences. But I, I, I definitely want to also like attune people to the fact that um, you are a data point somewhere as well. Like, <laughs> you know? For sure. <laughs> and that could be negatively impacting you and you just have no idea. <laughs> wow. You know? So there's some mm-hmm. people that have never really considered that. I mean, I know data right now is the big conversation. Um, mm-hmm. you know, in government and after the interviews of all of the big tech people, um, you know, a, f- a number of months ago now, you know, it's sort of still in the forefront, still bouncing around, but nothing, no real clear direction. So that's, uh, I loved hearing your opinion on that and where, um, you know, some of the scholars that you had mentioned in that industry are, are talking about it and saying about it. And I never really thought of it that way. So it's eye opening for me. Oh, God. <laughs> Okay, so I want to chat about your specific career now, and I got a couple of questions that'll take you down, you know, history of, you know, not the finest moments, but they're good learning opportunities, and then we'll get into the fun stuff, I promise. Great. So what has been the most challenging time in your design career so far? Why was it challenging, and how did you get through it? Um, I would say... It, it might be the Adobe Creative Residency was probably the most challenging time in my career, or maybe even just right after, because I didn't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, so something, something in that scape for sure. Um, but yeah, the the Adobe Creative Residency is a, a year long program that Adobe does, where they choose a handful of creatives from the world. So uh-huh. I was one of six people chosen in the world when wow, I did it. Wow, good for you. Um, yeah, there was four in the U.S from the U.S. and two from Germany my year. And um, uh, you get to pursue a passion project of your cho- choosing. But there's definitely a lot of, like, um, uh, a lot of, a lot of work that goes into that like mm-hmm. um uh your your proposal has to be challenging not only have you kind of created a rigorous schedule for yourself but you're constantly thrown um all these new opportunities uh to to grow your skills and so i definitely felt like it was um a challenging time to constantly produce uh content <laughs> pushing it out as hard as i can but mm-hmm. also making sure it was high quality but also learning new skills like i became a motion infographic because of motion infographic designer because of that year um i learned after effects in less than three months it was pretty insane and lots of nights crying but um i was able to do it (laughs) and then right after that whirlwind experience it goes by so fast i wasn't sure what i should do next i had developed a lot of skills i'd done a lot of networking i was constantly on like i I barely had any time off i felt like Mm -hmm. uh and i wasn't sure if grids was even still a good fit for me uh, and what I wanted to do, like I, I had to completely reevaluate, which kind of made me, a, I guess, a, a soul seeker sort of person. Like, I was like, mm-hmm. should I travel? Do I need to learn more? Who am I mentor? I'm such a weird place, and I hate not having direction. Mm-hmm. I like knowing. I'm very good at knowing the next spot. But um, yeah, yeah, it became almost like a hurtful question when people asked me, "What's next?" Because I'd be like, "I don't know." <laughs> I just have to cry. I have no idea. <laughs> so you basically went there and hopped on the train to burnout real fast. Oh yes, oh yes. <laughs> I lived in burnout for a while. I did. I lived in my burnout. <laughs> yeah, it's possible. Oh, yeah. It's not nice, but it is possible. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. All right, mm-hmm. cool. So then I wanted you to take us to a specific design or a project that you were a part of that did not go well or bring the desired result. What was that like and how did that feel? Oh, um, the, the first project that comes to mind is a project where I was working with a particular client. Um, I won't say their, their name. No, for sure. But... Um, uh, this this client like there was the project had a great opportunity uh, to really do some good community work um, and put that like do a more participatory design sort mm-hmm. of um, uh, project but the client didn't want me to actually talk to the the city folks that they had gathered like they wanted to keep all of those meetings separate from me and um what what happened was there was like this huge disconnect between what was happening in those meetings and what I was designing and it was very evident and there was so many conversations where I tried to explain the importance of just allowing me to sit in a session you know mm-hmm. <laughs> allowing me to like pose a question or show a draft to um the people that were most affected by the issue we were trying to solve um but they felt like it would be counterintuitive to the way that the nonprofit wanted the materials to be designed. So they didn't want too much influence and for it to take up uh, too much time as if I would corrupt them and they would corrupt me. And I didn't understand why they even asked me to design the work like at some point mm-hmm. because that's, that's like, you know, my brand is, you know, I collaborate with community, underline with. Like this is, this is all about power sharing um, I realized that people that have the lived experience of of that problem and that struggle makes them subject matter experts. Like, and they should be the ones describing what the the output should be because they know what realistic expectations are. They're the ones that truly understand the root causes. They're the ones that, when they have meaningful influence, uh, can really build out that that communication network mm-hmm. and help build buy-in into the work. And so the work becomes so much richer and so much more robust and generally has more longevity because of those powerful moments where, where um, we're all working together. And so I, I, I ended up just quitting that job. <laughs> yep. Like it, I just felt like it was um, uh, uh, just very destructive to the process and the pieces and I felt like I was making compromises that were unacceptable. And so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you said it right with that word process. You know, there is a process that needs to go into this. And when you have a, a, a process that works with communities and organizations like that, um, you know, you can't keep you stonewalled away from you know, the core, not the core problem, but the core audience. Yes. No, nope. I see it. See it there. So, what is something then that you're struggling with in your design career right now? Um, I would say having stronger aspirations. Because right now, I kind of feel like I've reached a little bit of a plateau. Mm-hmm. And I always encourage folks like to have braver aspirations. You know, um, look at whether or not look at either whatever is exciting you or looking at at your pain points and discomforts Mm -hmm. to help transform your work. And um, so I'm in in that space right now where I'm doing that for myself, where I'm practicing what I preach. Um, 
because I, I, I do like the work that I'm doing. I do like the folks that I'm working with, but I don't feel like I'm, I'm challenging myself or, or pushing, um, uh, what I'm capable of. Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm at. That's my challenge. Very mm-hmm. self-aware calling yourself out like that. <laughs> well, you got to. That's how That's you keep right. getting better. <laughs> Perfect. And then, what is um, what is one design product, tool, website, or community that you just can't live without? Ah, uh, well, uh, when when I saw this question, I immediately thought of my mouse. <laughs> I have a wireless mouse now. Uh, for years, I used to just use the trackpad when I designed. And I mean years, like through college, uh, when I started Grids, I've only had this mouse for maybe two years. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of insane. Like, why? how did I even do that? So I would say that's definitely the thing I can't live without. Wireless is, mouse, is that's wireless great. Mouse. <laughs> yeah, I have one, and I totally take it for granted. 100%. Right, right? If someone took it, like, what would you do? Like, I'd be lost. Be frustrated? <laughs> yeah, especially <laughs> like the, the Apple, the Apple magic mouse where you can just kind of like swipe across the top of the mouse and it does things for you. Oh, Ooh, so, yeah, it's nifty. real good. It's next level. Yeah. <laughs> so now I'm at the point where I want to ask you the pay it forward question. So this is a question that our last guest wanted to ask of our next guest and you are the next guest. Um, and this will give you, while you answer this one, it gives you an opportunity to sort of think of the question that you would like to ask of the next guest for your pay it forward question. So Skylar, who was a designer at a agency called Shore, um, wanted to ask the next guest who has been a design mentor of yours and what was that experience like for you? Um... A design mentor, I feel like I do kind of have a lot. Um, Antoinette Carroll, Dee Nichols, both of those folks have been really, really, really large design mentors for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the Antoinette Carroll is um, the creator of, um, oh shoot, um, of, creative Reac- of the Creative Reaction Lab in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. She's um, definitely very well known uh, within the AIGA circles and um, anything that has to do with like a racial equity in design. Mm-hmm. And Dee Nichols is also out of St. Louis and she's the creator of Civic Creative, um, which is a, um, uh, uh, a, a design agency that is cooperatively uh, led by the designers that work it and it focuses on design justice work. So both of those folks have benefited me the most in my life by um, giving me permission. I feel like, like oftentimes when I would start to, um, so when I did the residency and I started talking publicly about a lot of my beliefs and in detail, mm-hmm. I, I had a lot of, uh, of things to impart and share, but I was really concerned about the wording because most of the presentations I had done before the residency were in spaces that were like social justice spaces. And now I was in creative spaces. So it's like, okay, uh, these, you know, creatives around me, like, I don't know if they're going to have interest. I don't know if they're going to feel like um, shook by what I'm going to say or Uh by the the wording that I choose. And I wanted to be very tactful in how I broached some of these kind of more difficult things Mm -hmm. uh, that have to do with the design industry. And so when I would talk to Antoinette Carroll or Dee Nichols, sometimes even in the middle of the night, like they would get a text from me like, hey, do you want to get on a call? Like, hey, what are you doing? (laughs) 
I would like, you know, say a line or two from a presentation that I was interested in giving and ask them like what they thought about it. And oftentimes I felt like they were giving me permission to say what was really on my heart in a very authentic way. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I definitely like, I'm so thankful for those moments where they, where they did that for me because sometimes you kind of need uh, a mentor up here someone to help ground you and, and remind you that like, no, what you're saying is good. It's important. And people are, are far more understanding, resilient and connect more often than you think mm-hmm. to um, a lot of this work. And so, yeah. Perfect. Thanks. That's amazing. <laughs> That's a great answer. So now is your opportunity. What is your pay it forward question that you'd like to ask our next guest? Ah, well, I'm going to turn it to what I'm, what my issue is right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how are you challenging yourself these days? Ooh. How are you challenging yourself? You know, these mm-hmm. pay it forward questions are way better than my questions. So I'm just going to start. <laughs> <laughs> no, your questions are great. You have a lot of really good ones. I appreciate them. Thank I you. I appreciate that. Um, so, Jessica, I want to end off here with the lightning round. This is 10 random questions, some of them design-related. Some of them just give you an opportunity to flex your personality muscle and be a little bit fun and quirky. <laughs> okay, let's do it. All right, so I'm going to go with question set number two here. Are you ready to go? Ready. Number one, pancakes or waffles? Oh, waffles. Easy. <laughs> Make the sound of your favorite animal. Oh, shoot. Uh, uh, uh. But that'd be a dragon. 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 That was dragon. dragon. Just to clarify. Just to clarify. Uh, Bicycle or scooter? Oh, scooter. Easy. That was the easy one. How do you feel? How do you feel about cranberries, the fruit? Cranberries, the fruit? Too tart. Too tart. Uh, Are tomatoes a fruit or vegetable? Fruit. Uh, how often do you say the word dapper? <laughs> Not enough. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Have you, have you ever slept on a trampoline? No. What? Whoa, what would that do to your back? I don't know. It's probably not good. I mean, it's probably something that should have been done in the first 10 years of life. Yes. (laughs) Now it's not great. Uh, tea or coffee? Mm, Tea. Mm. CMYK or RGB? CMYK. All day long. All day long. So the last question is, you have to choose one of these. Um, Comic Sans or Papyrus? Uh, Comic Sans. Oh. Papyrus, I feel like, is asking about, is, is telling a story about something that I don't, I don't know what the story is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think it's too ambiguous for me. That's awesome. <laughs> Jessica, you survived, the, you survived the lightning round. Yeah! <laughs> don't get a prize. <laughs> yeah, that's so great. Jessica, I wanted to say thank you so much for being on the Quickie Podcast today. It was amazing having you on. Thank you for having me. I hope you have a good rest. All right. I told you. Fascinating. Just fascinating. I was educated on so many things I knew nothing about from the history of the Smoketown area of Louisville, Kentucky to data and, you know, what that actually means when people are sharing your data. Um, A great interview. I loved this one. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have an awesome day and I will see you tomorrow.